me. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for uh, the, the privilege to come, to, to come together and, and worship you and dive into your word. Lord, we pray, uh, we expect you to speak to us, to move in our hearts in power. Lord, that you would use this message, this historical account that happened so long ago to pierce our hearts and transform our minds and change our lives, God, because we know that that's what the power of your word does. Lord, so we ask that you would do that, that you would change us through this text. Fill us with your spirit. We ask that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 13, and we'll go through and finish 1 Samuel uh, chapter 7, all the way to verse 17. If you remember last week, I, I felt, not last week, three weeks ago, I felt like I had to break uh, chapter 6 up because there were so many good things there in those first 12 verses. But if you remember... Just one second. Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> if you remember, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, that's kind of like the intro into this section of the account. Uh, we see the Israelites, they come to battle against the Philistines and they put their faith in the Ark of the Covenant and they literally say, the, the Ark save us. Like they're calling out to the Ark to save them as if the Ark of the Covenant is God himself. And we see because they put their faith in the wrong thing, their faith was misplaced, they were defeated. The Philistines defeated them. And we discussed what it means to, to fight the enemy specifically through the form of religiosity because that's what they did. Uh, and then in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we saw what happens when God encounters little gods. When these little gods have the encounter with the big God, the greatest God, the only God, if you will. And we see Dagon was destroyed. Literally, Yahweh made him bow down before him and worship him. And then in chapter 6, the Philistines, because not only did God destroy their God, he also caused plagues to roam about uh, the cities there of, of Philistine. And these people were 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 having uh, tumors and and these rats came along and the Philistines are like we need to get rid of this God we need to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant so instead of accepting Yahweh as their God they wanted to get rid of them because they didn't want to submit to him but we see all along the way God was trying to make himself known to them uh, we discussed this testimony to the unbeliever in the last teaching. God, he performed this crazy miracle. We won't get into it because we already discussed it. But with these cows and uh, this path that they had to walk down and the calves were left behind and all these things that were seemingly impossible, God made possible all for what? Again, uh, as a testimony to the unbeliever, to the Philistines, so that they wouldn't just be afraid of God, but that they would recognize his power, his authority, and all ultimately accept God. Now we're going to see in this text, the Ark of the Covenant is finally going to be returned to Israel. And as God returns to Israel, if you will, the people are going to repent. And because the people are going to repent, they're going to be victorious, which brings me to the title of this teaching, Victorious Through Repentance. 
victorious through repentance. Uh, if anyone uh, didn't bring a Bible tonight or if you don't have a Bible, um, we have extra Bibles. We'd love to get one in your hands. If you just raise your hand real quick and we'll get one to you. Everybody's good? Got Bibles? All right, cool. Great. I forgot that. Stephen reminded me. Um, okay, so we see Samuel is going to come back on the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 7 in a few verses here, and he's going to lead the people in repentance. And as I said, as the people repent, we're going to see that they are victorious in this next battle against the Philistines. But this concept, this title, this idea, victorious through repentance, it doesn't just apply to them back then. It applies to us as well. We too can have victory through repentance. Now, ultimately, we have to remember that the battle's already been won, right? The Lord, he defeated hell, he defeated death, he defeated Satan, he defeated sin all on the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, in fact, it says he made a public spectacle of Satan and the demons. In other words, he, he embarrassed them. So we know the Lord has already won this victory, but we can have these little victories along the way in our Christian walk as we choose to respond to the Lord, abide in the Lord, and repent of the sins that, sadly but truly, sometimes find themselves playing themselves out in our lives. See, the Lord, though He's given us the victory, we can have these moments of defeat, if you will. Though the battle's already been won and we can claim that victory, sometimes we feel defeated. Why do we feel defeated? Well, we can only be defeated if we allow ourselves to lose. What do I mean? We've already won, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but we're defeated when we walk in defeat, meaning we can walk in victory or we can walk in defeat. And one of the ways to walk in victory is not only abiding in the Lord, but as I said, to walk in repentance. See, the Lord, he desires that we would be victorious, but it's our responsibility to choose to walk in victory. And we're going to see some of this play out here in 1 Samuel chapter 6, picking it up in verse 13. <clears throat> now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant is on its way back. Uh, the Philistines set God up for failure so that he would have to prove himself to them once again, right? They left the calves back. They, uh, they, they put, uh, the, they yoked the two cows that had never been trained to, to, to carry such a burden. He was, they were trying to set God up for failure, but we see he was successful. The Ark of the Covenant is on its way back to Israel. Continuing on, verse 13. People of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. So we have to kind of put ourselves in the Israelites' shoes for months, seven months to be specific. Their God and their minds have been gone, right? He's been gone. Remember, they cried out, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. They think God is gone. He's completely abandoned them. He's left them. We know that's not true. The Lord never leaves us nor forsakes, forsakes us, but, but it had the appearance of truth at least to the Israelites. So God is gone in their minds and now he's coming back. <laughs> and it's not like someone's bringing him back. He's coming back on two cows. Like this would have been like a crazy thing to see. This would have been close to 
Not exactly, but like the resurrection. They thought their God was dead, but now he's alive. They thought he was gone. They thought he disappeared. They were hopeless. They were helpless. They were just defeated by their enemy. The glory of the Lord departed, but now he's back. So when it says they rejoiced, they rejoiced. They were ecstatic. It wasn't anything they did. They didn't bring God back. God brought himself back. Now, again, we have to remember God isn't the Ark of the Covenant, but for the people of God, the Ark of the Covenant represented God. So we see the Ark, it comes back. The people are rejoicing to see it. Verse 14, then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. So we see this is some 10 odd miles from where they were in that Philistine city to Beth Shemesh. So these cows are literally carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Said They didn't go to the right. They didn't go to the left. They went straight with their baby calves crying behind them, trying to get them to come back to feed them. These calves have never been trained to carry this thing before, and they're walking straight, perfectly straight, for 10 miles, and then the cart stops at a specific spot. Like, come on. Like, watching this happen, it's like eerie a little bit. Like, who is directing these cows? Obviously, it's the Lord. These cows display an obedience that many of us don't display right they didn't waver to the left they didn't waver to the right they did and only did what god told them to do and they got to the place that god called them to be so they offered these cows poor cows right they offer them as burnt offerings this was just a way to express their gratitude to the lord and what he had accomplished they knew it was the lord himself that brought the ark of the covenant back it wasn't really the cows the lord used the cows but ultimately it was the lord so they provide this sacrifice with these cows again to express this thankfulness this is interesting because it doesn't say uh, that it was the priests. So we're going to see the priests uh, uh, are going to take down the ark, but we're going to say we're going to see that this wasn't necessarily a Levitically acceptable sacrifice. These were female cows, which was not Levitically acceptable. And this sacrifice wasn't performed at the tabernacle. But even though this wasn't a Levitically acceptable sacrifice, the Lord still accepted it. And we're going to see a couple other things in this text that really displays the Lord's mercy and his grace. He's allowing certain things to happen that he doesn't necessarily typically allow to happen. And then there's some other things when they open the ark that he absolutely stands his ground and he won't allow to happen. You'll understand as we dive a little deeper. So they provide these cows as a burnt offering, picking it up in verse 15. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So we see it's the Levites that took the ark. That was what was Levitically acceptable. Okay, The Levites were the only ones that were supposed to touch the ark. Now the Philistines touched the ark in uh, earlier in chapter 6, but God did not strike them down. He had grace on them. Why? Because they didn't know this law that it was only the Levites that were supposed to touch the ark but the israelites in this specific verse they do what was levitically sound if you will and they have the levites touch the ark first samuel chapter 1 verse 16 
So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod and one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath and one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. So we see these five lords of the Philistines. They're watching this whole thing play out till the last moment. Why? Because they still have doubt. Remember what we talked about in the last teaching? They were still summing this up as it might just be chance that all these things happen. Remember, they said this maybe just happened by chance. So so let's just do all these different things and test God to see if he'll truly prove himself. So they're following these cows all along to see if God is actually going to do and pass the test that they put in front of him. And sure enough, he passes the test. So these Philistine leaders, these lords, they end up returning. Okay, verse 19. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. So we remember the ark of the covenant. It contained three things, right? It contained the tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. It also contained Aaron's rod that budded, and it contained a jar of manna. So this is actually uh, probably what they're curious about. This is probably what they want to look into and see. Are these things still there? Okay, that's the most logical explanation why they're, why they're looking in. We don't know exactly why they're looking in, but we know ultimately it was curiosity. So their curiosity led them into sin. They touched the ark, which they already weren't supposed to do. Not only did they touch it, they opened the ark, which they were never supposed to do. And God ends up killing them, literally. You know the expression, curiosity killed the cat. Okay, it actually happened in this case. Now, we might wonder, why would God do such a thing? Or why would God need to hide these things? Why why would God not want anyone to look at the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the Ten Commandments? Why? We don't really know why. There are certain things that God doesn't want us to know. There's certain things that we're curious about and God simply won't tell us. I don't know why. Maybe it's because we wouldn't understand. Or maybe it's because he has some other reason. But we see this character quality not only here, but other areas of Scripture. You know the story, Job, right? Job, the most righteous man in the land. He uh, is persecuted by Satan, if you will. And God allows all these things to happen. And throughout the book, book Job is, is, is so upset. And he's accusing God of being his enemy. And he knows these things aren't happening because of his sin. And he has all these questions, as so many of us do when we walk through suffering. And what does God say in Job chapter 38 when he encounters Job? He didn't answer any of his questions. He just asked him some questions. If you can answer my questions, then I'll answer your questions. He didn't give him the answers to the curious questions that he had. 
He just met him where he was at. And apparently that was good enough for Job. Okay, as long as I know you're here, those questions are irrelevant. Okay, but as long as you're with me, we're good. And we see God blessed him double the amount that he had. Not that that made up for his lost children and family members and uh, livestock and everything he lost. But the point is there are certain things that we're just not meant to know. Right now we know in part, but then we shall know just as we also are known. It's okay to not know everything. Who knows everything? Please tell me, I want to know everything. No, but in all sincerity, there are certain things that God just doesn't want us to know. And we see their curiosity not being content with the unknown. They seek out something that God didn't want them to know. And God strikes them. Now it says he struck 50,000, verse 19, and 70 men of the people. That seems like a weird number, right? 50,000 and 70 men. What does that even mean? What kind of language is this? Well, when you look at the original manuscripts, it appears that he struck down 70 men. And the best translations I found with this regarding this text, it's not that significant, but I think it's kind of cool. Out of 50,000 people, he struck down 70. Okay, so it appears there were 50,000 men there and he struck down 70 of them. He didn't strike down 50 thousand plus 70 men okay it's just uh you know one of those hebrew texts that's like kind of hard to dissect that's why you have uh different translations either way god did indeed strike down at least 70 men it would appear so the people were just rejoicing why god is back yes god is back and he brought his standard back with him He brought his standard of this is the law. These are my commandments and I demand your obedience to what I say. So they're excited that he's back, but it's not mercy. It's not grace right now in this moment. He brings back the law. He brings back the standard and the people, the people were disobedient. See, God, he has and always has always will have a higher standard for his people you look at the 613 levitical laws and it's like man that's rough to keep that standard but that was the standard that he had for the jews but the truth for the christian is he has an even higher standard he has an even higher standard than what the levitical law states what am i talking about Jesus said it best in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says this, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, We know righteousness is a heart thing, and righteousness is something that God, Jesus Christ, imparts to us, but there's also a higher standard that the Lord calls the Christian to live. See, It's not that we have to follow all these strict 613 laws, but we're called to do everything that God tells us to do to have radical obedience. The standard for the Christian is even higher than the standard was for the Jew and God. That's what he's doing here. He's bringing his standard back with him. I also believe God had another purpose in striking these men down. See, The Ark of the Covenant was back. So many of the people are likely rejoicing because the Ark is back. And they put so much faith, so much hope in the Ark of the Covenant. But their their faith wasn't truly in the Lord for whom the Ark of the Covenant was built. And I believe personally that the Lord allowed this to happen to establish something. Hey, 
It's not you putting your hope in the Ark of the Covenant this time. You need to put your hope in me. It's about having a relationship with me. And part of that relationship, well, it looks like obedience. It looks like doing what I'm asking you to do. So he sets this standard and he sets it right off the get-go. He's coming back and he's telling, hey, we're not playing games this time around. The things I tell you to do, I want them to want you to do them, not just for my benefit, but for your benefit. <clears throat> Picking it up in 1 Samuel. Chapter 6, verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kerjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. So instead of recognizing that they did wrong, they blame it on God's harshness. Who can stand before the Lord? Well, you'd all be standing if you weren't disobedient. If you didn't do what God strictly said not to do, everyone would be standing. Everyone would be alive. But they say, who can stand before the Lord? But it was really their disobedience that led to these 70 men being struck down. And they say, not just the Lord, this holy Lord God. They just got smacked with the Lord's holiness. Holiness is a character quality that we tend to forget about God. What do I mean? Everyone says God is love, right? God is love. He's also forgiving, right? He's also gracious. He's also merciful, but he's also holy. He's also just. He's also a righteous judge. See, sometimes we can pick these certain character qualities that we really like about God but then he hits us with one that we're not used to or we're not comfortable with. And they just got again smacked with the Lord's holiness. Well, what does this holiness mean? Holy actually means to be set apart. And we could go into this forever, but for time's sake, we won't. We see the Lord is set apart. He's separate from his creation. He's the only being that's self-sustaining. He's the only being that doesn't need another being to exist. He's set apart. He's different from his creation. But he does call us to be holy as well. Be holy as the Lord is holy. That means we're called to be set apart from the world. It means to live a righteous lifestyle, to walk in his way, to do what he does. Look what they say here. 1 Samuel Chapter 6, second sentence of verse 20, 20b, it says, And to whom shall it go up from us? So we see God's holiness, it didn't draw them closer. It, it made them scared. It made them fearful so much so that they wanted to get rid of God. They're doing the same thing that the Philistines did. They see God's holiness. They say, we don't want you take him. We can't handle the, We can't handle the holiness of God. We can't handle doing what he's asking us to do. So they sent messengers to this place, as I just read, to Kerjath Jerem. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's how I'm saying it tonight. Um, and, and it says uh, that the Philistines have brought back the Ark of the Lord, come down, down and take it up with you. They're trying to pawn this off on these other men that might know how to deal with it more uh, in, in a way that's not going to get all these other people killed. So when you look at what these people are doing, 
They get smacked with God's holiness and then they try to pawn God off to the next people, as I said, just as the Philistines did. But we can do this too. What do I mean? When we face a character quality of God that we don't really like, do we try to like push away from God? Not that we can get rid of them. We know we can never get rid of them, but maybe we face a character quality that we really didn't appreciate. Maybe it was that righteous judge thing. Maybe it was the justice thing. I want God to be just, but when his justice ends up putting me in a bad situation, I I don't want God's justice anymore. I, I want him to be a good father, but not the good father that disciplines. I want him to be this certain kind of God, but not a God that puts me through something difficult. And when we face these character qualities of God, we too can be like the men of Beth Shemesh and say, hey, someone else take him. Or God, I'm not going to draw near. I'm not going to draw close. I'm afraid of this character quality, which leads us to a place where we're lacking intimacy. But we have to understand all these different character qualities are really summed up in love. God is love and everything that he does is rooted somehow in love. He is love. His holiness is love. His justice is love. Uh, His judgment is even love when you really look at it. But when these things happen to us in our lives, we have to filter all these things through the fact that we know God is love and he's for us. The people... I believe they question this, if God really loved them, if he was really for them. So they leave it at this place. Uh, I'll try to say it again. Uh, the place is Kerjath Jerem, and we'll see that it's going to sit here for 70 years, okay, 70 plus years, all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 6, when David's going to come back to get it. Picking it up in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 1. Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So they appoint this guy Eleazar to watch after the ark of the covenant. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Okay, when it says 20 years, it's there 20 years between uh, verse 1 when it came there and verse 3 when Samuel first spoke. But it's going to remain there for 50 more years after this. Picking it up in verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So we see we're reintroduced to Samuel and what is he doing? He's doing exactly what we saw him doing from the beginning back in 1 Samuel chapter 3. He's hearing from the Lord and he's delivering a message. Now, we don't know what he's been doing for all this time. We don't know. Some say that he was likely ministering to other places. Uh, we're not really sure. Maybe the Lord was kind of pruning him, growing him up, growing up, uh, up. The text doesn't really tell us where Samuel be, Samuel is, but, but he's back now. And that's what's important. So he has this message for the people of Israel. He says, return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods. See, 
Though the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to the people of God, that didn't necessarily mean that the people's hearts were brought back to God. Meaning just because God did this miraculous work doesn't mean the people are restored in their relationship with them. So that's where Samuel comes in to bring that restoration. And he does it through the call of repentance. There was a disconnect. There was a separation between the people and God, and we'll see a majority of it was was obviously sin, but specifically idolatry. That's why he says, put away your foreign gods. But notice, I'll tell you again, I'll read it again. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods. See, the repentance had to be uh, inwards before it could be outwards. They had to repent in their hearts before they could do it externally. With your whole heart, seek the Lord, then put away your foreign gods. Which brings me to the first point. I know it took us a while to get here. They'll come faster, I promise. True, true repentance happens from the inside out. True repentance happens from the inside out. It's so important that this is the way it's communicated because this is the way that it has to happen in our lives. Return to the Lord with your whole heart and then put away the foreign gods. Sometimes we try to do the practical before we do the spiritual. But the spiritual, the heartfelt thing has to happen first. This isn't the only time that it's mentioned. When Paul talks about repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, look at what he says here. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 Verse 10, for godly sorrow re- produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted. Godly sorrow? Yeah, that's that heart thing. That's that heart thing that says, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I did to God. I can't believe what I did that, that, that hurt God's heart this much. I can't believe I, I, I performed an act or had a thought or said this thing that brought separation in our relationship. And I don't want to do anything that's going to bring separation between me and my intimacy with the Lord. My heart desires to be closer to God than it does desire, than, than the desire to sin. In other words, that's that godly sorrow. And look what happens when that godly sorrow is produced not only salvation but the sorrow of the world produces death for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner what diligence it produced in you what clearing of yourselves what indignation what fear what vehement desire what zeal what vindication and all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter what's he listing He's listing character qualities. See, when the godly sorrow thing is there, when we're returning wholeheartedly to the Lord, then the character's bound to follow, but it has to go that way. We can't just try to muster up the character and make it happen. It has to be a return to the Lord and abiding in the Lord because without Him, we can do nothing. We don't produce fruit if we're not abiding in the vine. We can try all we want, but it's not real fruit. But when we return to the Lord with all our hearts, when that repentance is internal first, then it will be external. That's what he's saying. Return to the Lord with all your heart and then put away the foreign gods. Back to 1 Samuel chapter 7. He says, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, verse 3, from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. They were serving God, big G, and they were serving other gods, little G's. 
They were committing idolatry, if you will. They had more than one God that they were worshiping. They were worshiping Yahweh when it was convenient, when they wanted to experience His power, than when they wanted His deliverance. But when He calls them out on sin, when He calls them to repentance, uh, we're going to worship the Baals. We're going to worship the Ashtoreths because we can perform all these sexual acts and commit sin and they approve out of it. In fact, they, they invite us to do these things. These other gods were bringing them to a place of destruction. He's saying you can't serve these other gods. You serve God and God alone, or you serve these other gods and you continue to face this destruction. And the Lord makes this so clear throughout Scripture. It's the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. But Jesus, He also says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and mammon. Mammon was believed to be the God of money, but it, it really gives us a picture of any other God that we're putting before God Almighty when we're not making Him preeminent. If we're serving other gods, then we can't wholeheartedly be serving the true living God. See, the people in this response of repentance, they needed to choose. They needed to decide who their God actually was. See, the Philistines, they already made their choice. We don't want Yahweh. Even though Dagon is crushed, laying on his face, we're going to still worship him, this worthless God. But they made their decision. Now Samuel's putting it to the, Phil- to the Israelites. He's saying, now you need to make your decision. What God or gods will you serve? First Samuel chapter 7, and he says, look, if you do these things, Prepare your heart, serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. What's he saying? If you're right in right relationship with the Lord, he's going to deliver you. If you establish true, sincere repentance, he's going to have your back. He's going to give you victory. First Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. So Baal was thought to be, amongst other things, the god uh, of weather. Uh, they believed that he would provide good crops. Uh, but he was also the, the male god of uh, fertility. Okay, Ashtoreth was the female god of fertility, the goddess of love, the goddess of sex. These are who these gods are, and it's going to come up, so I'm just mentioning it uh, now. I'll remind you again in a few verses. So it, se- it seems that the Israelites, they put away the Baals, they put away the Ashereths, they stopped serving these false gods, and they maintained this service of the true God, the real God, Yahweh. First Samuel chapter 7, verse 5, and Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, And I will pray to the Lord for you. It wasn't just about putting away the foreign gods. It was about seeking the true God. So what Samuel is doing, he's trying to help them establish these hearts that seek after God. It's not just saying, oh, we're going to seek God now. No, he's leading them in a spiritual discipline to put this into practice. He gave them direction, but now this is discipleship. He's showing them, he's leading them in prayer what it actually means to serve this God, to seek this God, to worship this God. He's leading by example. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said... There, we have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. 
So, it says that they gathered together at Mizpah. They responded to Samuel's direction. They wanted to change, not only as individuals, but as a whole, as a body, as a group. They came together in an act of repentance. Point number two, repentance is both individual and communal. Repentance is both individual and communal. I'm starting to get used to that screen now, and it's not on this time, so I'm like, are there points going up here? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Repentance is both individual and communal. Well, we know ultimately it's our responsibility to repent. I can't blame it on someone else if I'm not walking in repentance. It's Adam's fault I didn't repent. You know, like we can't do that. That wouldn't make sense, right? But we also see in scripture that it's also a communal thing. People do it together. You don't need to do it together, but it's often more effective. It's often more efficient when you repent of certain things together. Let me show you in Ecclesiastes chapter four, in Ecclesiastes chapter four, right after Proverbs, if you get there, says this, verse nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. You see that exhortation by Solomon there. Hey, hey, when we try to do this life on our own, what are we going to do when we fall? What are are we going to do when, when we come up short? The point is two are better than one. When your buddy, your brother, your sister, your wife, your child, whoever it is, when they fall, you have that opportunity to help them up. See... Repentance, yes, the responsibility is on the individual, but there's so much power in doing this uh, as a community. Now, I'm not telling you to go tell the whole church all your sins and let's do this together. I'm not completely saying that, okay? But if you have someone else, maybe it's an accountability partner, could be a wife, could be a husband, could be a brother, sister in the Lord, and you're struggling with something, say something. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. That's what James tells us in James chapter 5. But in that accountability of confessing our sins to one another, there's the power to help each other and bear each other's burden so that that repentance will actually last. Are you trying to overcome your sins by yourself? Are you letting someone know and saying, hey, I need some help with this? There's certain things with my wife, certain individuals, depending on what it is. It's like, hey, I want help with this. I'm telling you, I want help with this specific thing. So if you see me doing this or not doing that, say something to me because I want the help. I want to get better at this thing. It takes humility, but there's so much power in it when we do it together. That's why we're the body of Christ. We weren't meant to do this life alone. That was the first thing that God said that wasn't good man being alone. After creation, we were meant to do these things together. So we see the people of Israel, they gather together in this act of repentance. So they gather together, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. See, this was a ceremony representing uh, their souls being poured out. Uh, In other words, uh, I'm poor in spirit, I'm giving it all to you, God. 
I'm giving my heart, soul, life, everything to you. I'm, I'm poor in spirit. I'm pouring it out to the Lord. This was this expression. It was expression of, uh, an expression of humility and dependence on the Lord. And it says that they fasted and they confessed their sins. They're fasting. They're confessing. This is sincere repentance. This is the godly sorrow that Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's real. It's legit. Verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So... We see as these people come together in the name of the Lord to repent and renew their relationship with God, what happens? The Philistines catch wind. Like, uh-uh-uh, they're gathering together. They're grouping up again. They're strengthening numbers. We're going to do something to stop that. Isn't that what the enemy does? He tries to prevent the community in the body of Christ. He tries to prevent the believer from getting the accountability to to getting that support and that power in numbers. And just as the Philistines try to come in and take them out before they're truly united, so too does the enemy do this with us. And he'll use anything. He'll use anything. He'll use something that you don't like about the church anything. I don't like those people or I don't like that specific person, that person that I don't like that I know is going to be there. I'm not going to church anymore because I I don't like the young pastor. He's too young. What does he know? I don't like the worship. It's just not my style. The lighting, it bothers me. It's too hot in here. Whatever it is, the Lord will use Sorry, the enemy will use anything to prevent us from gathering together as a body because he knows the power there, the strength there. That's why Peter likens the enemy to a lion, right? Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And who do lions go after? The weak, the lonely, the isolated, the people that are all alone, right? That's what the enemy would have for us. So when he sees the body of Christ come together, you can expect spiritual warfare. You can expect attack. And that's exactly what's happening in this text. They catch wind and they try to prevent this coming together from happening. But look at how the Israelites respond. Last part of verse 7. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now here's a problem. Why are they afraid? Samuel just told them by the word of the Lord. Remember, not one word fell to the ground that came out of Samuel's mouth. What does that mean? Every prophecy that he proclaimed came true. Okay, he's already established himself as a prophet. He just told them, if you repent, if you serve the Lord with your whole heart, if you put away your foreign gods, God will deliver you. But now they're afraid. Why? Because they're struggling with faith. There's a lack of faith and that lack of faith is leading to fear. Point number three. Fear is present when faith is absent. Fear is present when faith is absent. Now think about what they're struggling with. Think about what they're afraid of. Okay, Samuel just gave them a word from the Lord and they're doubting the word. 
They're afraid because they're not trusting in the promise that God just gave through the person of Samuel. We're afraid. What are the Philistines going to do to us? It, it struck fear in them. And we see throughout Scripture, even from the beginning, doubt leads to sin and sin leads to fear. That's what happened. The very first sin that we read about in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, it all started with doubt. Look what happened with Eve in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What was he doing? He's trying to inspire doubt in her. Did God really say? Did God really say this? Is this what God's word actually says? And it started with doubt. And then he appealed to the lust of her flesh and the lust uh, of, uh, of her eyes and the pride of life. And, and, and he got her. And, and what happened? That doubt, it, it ultimately led to sin. Now you want to see the first time fear is mentioned in the Bible? It's right here. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. This is Adam speaking. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. See how that happens? The doubt, it it leads to sin and the sin, it leads to fear. But it all goes back to trusting God in his word. If we're truly trusting God, trusting the word of God, there is no fear. There isn't fear to be had if we believe what he said. Then we won't be afraid. You ever struggle trusting the word of God? You ever read something that you're like, "Mm, I don't know about that. I don't get that. I don't understand that. And the enemy will even use that lack of understanding to inspire doubt. Does that really say, did God really say, did God really mean this? See, we know where faith comes from. It's Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay, So if you're struggling with this doubt that is inevitably going to lead to sin, which ultimately leads to fear, recognize the source to overcome that fear is getting in the word of God. You know what? I'll say this plainly. I used to struggle with doubt bad as an early Christian. My mind was so corrupted and I had so many things that were embedded in my mind that I thought were true that weren't true. And there were so many things I would read the Bible and be like, God, I don't get this. This was one of the biggest struggles I had early as a Christian. You know what I did? I kept reading the Bible. I kept reading the Bible and seeking these answers. And you know what happened? God provided answers and he provided answer after answer after answer after answer. Not every answer that I looked for, but about 99% of them. And you know what? It made faith kind of easy. Honestly, not that it's easy to walk by faith, but it made it very easy to believe that this is the word of God inspired by God and that God is who he says he is and his promises are true. So if you're there, if you're struggling with that doubt, like the Israelites did, one of the main ways to battle that doubt is, 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 is be steadfast in the word of God. Study to show yourself approved. And as we're in it, the faith will grow. The doubt will cease. When faith is present, fear is absent. That full-fledged faith, the fear will diminish. First Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, 
Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he might save us from the hand of the Philistines. They might still be struggling with fear, but they're humble enough to ask for prayer. And this fourth final point. When struggling with fear, ask for prayer. When struggling with fear, ask for prayer. When struggling with fear due to a lack of faith, do you ask for prayer? Or do you think this, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't doubt. (laughs) I'm a Christian, I shouldn't be afraid of these things. Uh, I'm a Christian, I should be trusting God with these things. I don't want to open up, I don't want to be transparent, I don't want to tell someone else that that I'm afraid, I'm not trusting the Lord, I'm doubting these things. That's not a good thing. In fact, we even see Paul the Apostle as a spiritual giant, the gift of faith like no other, he was humble enough to ask for prayer. And he does it in almost every letter that he writes. I'll show you one example in Colossians chapter 4. In Colossians chapter 4, No, I'm not saying that in this moment Paul is struggling with doubt. But I am saying in this moment Paul is humble enough to ask for prayer. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. We, meanwhile, praying for also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. Obviously, he's praying for a door to be opened, but the point is this spiritual giant Paul, he recognizes the power of prayer, and he knew he was a, a weak man that needed other people to be praying for him so that he could be strong in the Lord. How often do you ask for prayer? Are you humble enough to ask for ask people to pray for you? We have opportunities at this church to, to help you with that. Uh, we have the prayer chain where you can fill out on the bulletin specific prayer requests. Everyone I get, I pray for. And it's not just me. It's a bunch of other people that are praying for these things. It's an opportunity to put yourself out there. If you don't feel like coming up, but you can also come up after every service. Generally, we have an opportunity for you to pray with someone. But sometimes, I believe people are afraid of expressing humility and coming up. And your fear of expressing humility is preventing you from overcoming all these other fears that you have because you won't humble yourself and just ask someone to pray for you. The Israelites, though they're afraid, they pray in humility. They ask Samuel to pray for them, to seek the Lord on their behalf. Picking it up in verse 9, we're almost there. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. So Samuel, despite everything the people did, they fasted, they confessed, they repented, Samuel, in wisdom, still provides a sacrifice. Why? Well, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says this, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Meaning Samuel knew, because they were under the law, under the sacrificial system, that there still needed to be a sacrifice for the people to be right with God. Though they repented, though they confessed, 
Though they fasted, they did all these things, put away the foreign gods, there still needed to be a sacrifice. Lucky for us, we're not under the sacrificial system anymore because Jesus was the final sacrifice. That's why John the Baptist proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take the sins of the world away. So, we can just do the other things. Put away the foreign gods. Confess, repent, fast. All these different things. But Samuel in wisdom knew that there had to be a sacrifice for the restoration and relationship. First Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with the loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. So we see the people repent. Samuel provides a sacrifice and the Lord responds. He responds with thunder, which was interesting because we discussed how Baal was thought to be the God that controlled the weather, right? So Yahweh proves to the Philistines and the Israelites, dude, Baal's got nothing. He can't do anything. It was Yahweh who provided the thunder. And right after the thunder, what happens? They overcome the enemy. So confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Verse 11, And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites were doing what? They were fleeing. They were afraid. Why? Because they were getting defeated, if you will, by the Philistines. But now, they're pursuing the Philistines. Why? Because they repented, they restored their relationship with the Lord. And because they're in right relationship with the Lord, now they have courage. Now they have confidence. See, courage and confidence it comes from our pursuit of God. Because they pursued God, now they have the courage and confidence to overcome their enemy. Our pursuit of God gives us the courage and confidence to not only overcome our enemy, but overcome obstacles, overcome trials, overcome anything and everything that this world throws out at us. First Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. When he says, Thus far the Lord has helped us, that implies not just that time period, but all of history. Thus far the Lord has been helping his people since way back in the beginning. Okay? But there's also, when you look at the original Hebrew, the implication of the future. This is who God has proved himself to be. He's helped us this far. This is who he's going to be. He's going to continue to be this same God because he was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says this, Ebenezer, the Lord has helped us. It's funny because they were defeated in Ebenezer in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Right, But now they have victory, uh, and, and he cries out Ebenezer in 1 Samuel chapter 7. It's the same place, but we see a different outcome, all because they were in right relationship with the Lord this time. And he sets up this memory stone, if you will. Samuel does. The Philistines were, were subdued, and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines, all the days of Samuel. 
So we see because Samuel was a faithful leader, the Lord has his, had his back and he, they were victorious for a long period of time. Picking it up in verse 14. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. We see all this grace, this restoration, this recovery, all these different things that are happening for the people of Israel because they're simply in right relationship with God. Verse 15, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Beth. El, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always re- returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So we see this man Samuel, after he leads his people in, re- in repentance, which ultimately leads them to victory, he continues to care for these people. He roams around the different cities there and, and he judges them. That doesn't mean he condemns them. Uh, that means he's, he's leading them, okay? He is their authority, uh, but he's evaluating them. He's the leader over them. It doesn't mean like he's judging them in that sense of the word he's loving on them he's caring for them he would return to ramah it says for his home was there the there he judged israel and there he built an altar to the lord an altar was always a place of of sacrifice and worship so we see this consistency played out through samuel's life and and his pursuit of god it wasn't like uh, they repented god gave them victory and now samuel's like all right put my legs up we're good Yeah, God gave us victory over the Philistines. We're good now. There's no need for us to continue to pursue God. No, no, no. He was setting the example. He was leading them in what it looked like to have a relationship with the Lord. He continued to provide sacrifices all in an effort to worship the Lord, to see God and the people were blessed because of that leadership. Ultimately, there's a drastic difference between what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you remember, 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see the people try to fight the enemy, as I said earlier, with religiosity and superstition. They were putting their hope in the Ark of the Covenant. This time, they truly repent with godly sorrow. They come back to the Lord with whole, full hearts, and the Lord, He gives them victory because of their response to Him. See, the Lord... He desires us all to have victory. And it's sad, but true. So often in the church, there's so many that are, that are kept in bondage. And I think this is something that we tend to neglect or forget as believers. When we look at the gospel and we need to have this mentality, the Bible demands that we have this mentality. When we look at, at the gospels and what it says, yes, Jesus, he was, he was victorious over Satan and the demons. He was victorious over hell. He was victorious over death, but he was also victorious over sin. And we share in that victory because he won. We win. Anyone have a favorite team? This is where I'll I'll end it. Anyone have like a favorite team, like love some certain sport, like football, baseball? Just admit it. Raise your hand if you like something. Okay, I'm a diehard Seminole fan. All right, love Florida State. Literally, when they win, I say we won. 
Why? Because I feel like I'm a part of the team, really. And when they lose, I'm like devastated for days, okay? Uh, Because I feel like we lost. See, this is the response that we must have when we understand the victory that Jesus performed on the cross, specifically as it pertains to sin. Because he won. We win. Like, we're we're all on the same team. We won, which means that sin no longer has power over us. Uh, when we fall into sin, it's because we allow it to. We allow ourselves to fall into sin. He's given us his divine nature. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The the excuse of my flesh is weak, it no longer applies. It, It really doesn't when you look at the power that God's given us in his divine nature, in his Holy Spirit. When we look at that victory that has been accomplished for us through the person of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. It's powerful and it's ours for the taking. But it's our responsibility to choose to walk in it. He won't make us walk in it. He says, here it is. You can walk in You can be victorious as a Christian. We can be. He's given us the power to be. But we have to choose to be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Your grace, God, thank you for the call to, to repentance and the victory that you give, give us through, uh, through repentance, just through simply choosing to, to turn from the things that we know you, you wouldn't have us do, Lord, and, and the power you give us to, to accomplish that, to walk in that victory. Lord, I pray that we would uh, understand that on an even deeper level, God, that that, that we wouldn't use the excuse for ourselves that oh, we'll never be perfect or we're not perfect or, or, or any of those things that are, that are so easy to, to think. God, but we know you've given us the power not just over hell, not just over death, but over sin as well. And I pray that we would access that power, abide in it, walk in it, Lord, and choose to live in victory. In your name, amen.